Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Changing your life one story at a time. This is the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast with Editor-in-Chief Amy Newmark. Hey everyone, it's Amy Newmark with your Chicken Soup for the Soul. And today we have a special guest, New York Times bestselling author, Brad Meltzer. Brad Meltzer is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Lightning Rod, the Escape Artist, and about a dozen other bestseller thrillers. He also writes nonfiction books like The Nazi Conspiracy, which is about a secret plot to kill FDR, Stalin, and Winston Churchill at the height of World War II. And he's also the co-author of the Ordinary People Change the World Kids book series. And we're going to talk about all of these later in the interview. You know, most authors specialize in a certain genre, but Brad does everything. He writes best-selling thrillers, novels, of course. He writes best-selling nonfiction books that read like thrillers. He writes inspiring, exciting children's books. He's written comic books, and he also creates and writes TV shows. In fact, The Hollywood Reporter put him on their list of Hollywood's 25 most powerful authors. He was raised in Brooklyn and Miami. He's a graduate of the University of Michigan and Columbia Law School, and he currently lives in Florida with his wife and three children. And Brad, welcome back to the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast. Oh, so good to be back, Amy. Thank you. So I was really appreciative. We're going to talk about all of your books, but first I just want to do a little chicken soup talk first. So we're going to start with talking about the story that you wrote some time ago that I asked you to contribute to the 30th anniversary edition of Chicken Soup for the Soul because I thought it was such a great lesson and it really had a place in our revised, updated Chicken Soup for the Soul, the one that started it all, but now I want to include today's thought leaders. And so that's where you come in. And your story is called The Best Seat in the House. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, you know, this is a true story. And I think the best ones are, right? And this happened to me. I used to volunteer as a big brother through big brothers, big sisters. And I had this young African-American boy who was named Ace, who was my little brother. And I was taking him to his... He'd never been to a baseball game before. In fact, he never wore a baseball mitt. When I gave him a baseball mitt to put on, he put it on the wrong hand. because he. Ne- and I realized, oh my gosh, this, this young boy, eight, nine years old when we, were, when we first met, had never worn a baseball glove before. He never had the means to have one. And so now I'm taking him to his first Major League Baseball game. We're going to see the Baltimore Orioles play outside of Washington, D.C. And my friend offers me tickets. He's like, I'll get you, you know, I'll put you right, you know, right behind home plate. I have seats right. And I said, no, 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 I don't want those seats because I don't want to spoil him. If I'm going to take him to his first game, you can't go sit like right behind home plate. Then, he, then every seat after he goes back will just not be great. So I picked these truthfully, Amy, kind of like crappy seats that are in the outfield. They're like right by the foul pole in the outfield. 
actually, I, I thought they were going to be a little better. We sit down. I'm looking around. We're in the middle of nowhere. And he looks left and he looks right. And he basically is like, these are the best seats in the whole place. And when he said it, I almost fell over. That was so sweet. And again, as parents, we all know, the best moments with your child are the ones you can't possibly plan for. They just hit you like a freight train. And when my little brother says, this, this kid that I'm volunteering with and giving my time with says, we got the best seats in the house, I'm just like, what, you know, I can't plan for that. And it, was, and it just put the whole world in perspective for me. Yeah, that was really great and was a perfect fit for Chicken Soup for the Soul. Yeah, did you ever take him back to another game? The funny part is we used to do, so we, we used to fly planes together. He loved flying planes. The only thing he wanted to do again that he really cared about doing is he used to love going to McDonald's. And every time we went, I'd be like, yeah, you sure we can go? But he just loved McDonald's. And we lost touch for many years. Ace is now... I think 30 years old. It's crazy how old he is. And I'm not sure if he is today, but last time I spoke to him, which was, you know, probably six months ago, we, I always speak on his birthday with him. He had become the manager of McDonald's. And I love the fact oh that of all the things we did together. <laughs> and I'm like, of course you are. Like, you love that stuff. So we never, I'm trying to think if we went to another baseball game. I remember, I honestly don't remember because the first one was the only one that mattered to me. But he did learn the catch. I did learn him and I, I did get him his own baseball mitt, which was great. But the thing that is, I think for me, caught me so off guard is, is not just, oh, he enjoys the seats. But again, I know it goes without saying, but sometimes, and I know Chicken Soup does this so well, we are looking so hard sometimes for meaning. We don't realize meaning's right in front of our face. In fact, the, the story that we're just talking about starts with a quote by, by Thoreau that says, the question is not, what you look at, but what you see. And another favorite quote in my house that my daughter and I share a love for is this, is this quote, which is, you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And through his eyes, I got to change the way that I looked at things. And of course, in that moment, everything I looked at changed. And I think we all need to take the moment and kind of see the world through my little brother's eyes and all the stuff that we're complaining about and worrying about and you know, beating ourselves up about. Just take a breath and, and realize sometimes you don't even realize it, but you got the best seat in the whole place. I love the fact that he's managing a McDonald's now. Isn't that spectacular? I wonder if he still loves the food or if he's tired of it by now. I'm going to ask him. To go I'm going to tell KFC. you what, <laughs> As soon as we're done talking, I'm going to have to, I'm going to definitely text him and ask him. Yeah. yeah. It might be too much of a good thing now. Well, all right. Speaking of kids, let's talk about your huge line of books for children, which just keeps growing and growing. And I know we've talked about it in the past. I guess you have I Am Mr. Rogers coming out any day now. You've got I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg coming out in January. You just keep churning out these amazing books for kids about people they've heard of and their parents have heard of. Yeah, you know, we, we started this book series because I was tired of my own kids looking at famous people and thinking that was a hero. I wanted my kids to have better heroes to look up to. Heroes of kindness and compassion, perseverance, and humility. Remember when humility was a great American value? We've lost that, right? Now we pay attention to people who write in all capital letters and triple exclamation points on the internet. You know, the internet is all about being noticed. Can you make yourself be noticed? And I want none of that for my kids. I want my kids to find heroes of kindness. 
So we started with I'm Amelia Earhart, I'm Abraham Lincoln. We did I'm Rosa Parks and Albert Einstein. My son loves sports. We did I'm Jackie Robinson. And, you know, we've done everyone from Walt Disney, you can name it. But now, as you said, this is going to make us both feel old, but next year will be the 10-year anniversary in just a few months. The 10-year anniversary of the Ordinary People Change the World series, the I Am series. And we are, as you said, days away from I Am Mr. Rogers. And Fred Rogers is, when I was five years old, Fred Rogers and Jim Henson taught me that you could use your creativity to put good into the world. When I used to watch Sesame Street, when I watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that's what that's the lesson I got is be creative and you can help change the world. And all I'm trying to do to this day, especially with this book, is just try and use my creativity to put some good into the world. And I think the Mr. Rogers book, it really did hit me, to, to use the metaphor again, like a freight train. It was one of the only of a few books that I've written that it made me cry while I was writing it. And it's these moments of Fred Rogers when he's young and when he's little and, of course, when he's older. And you just realize the pureness, the kindness that he has, you know, at every level of his life. And and when he's a little boy, he actually sends away at the back of a comic book, you know, for those you know, get muscles, don't get sand kicked in your face, learn to be strong. And he sends away for it and he does push-ups and all the things and pull-ups that you're supposed to do. And of course he has none, you know, he's made fun of. He's he's a, he's a small little weak kid. They make fun of him for his allergies. They make fun of him for being sick in bed. And when he would be alone in bed and, and his parents would keep him in the house because they didn't want him getting more sick, he used to go under the covers, prop his knees up under the covers and with little puppets, tell stories from just himself. Oh my gosh. And then he turned that into a television show. And that's literally how he started. It's as a little boy, wow. solitary, alone in his room. And that's where Mr. Rogers starts. Not at 40 years old or 50 years old or 60 years old, where we all know him. But as a 10-year-old boy who's just, you know, got really bad allergies and, and has some sickness that is, you know, he's, he's just not as strong as the other kids. But he says, but I have my creativity and I can do some good. So I know you also do some of these books about superheroes, like Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman. So I thought that was fun that you're using them as role models for the kids. Well, what happened was, is, you know, I love doing I'm Amelia Earhart and I'm Abraham Lincoln and all the Mr. Rogers and all the real people, of course. But we teamed up with DC Comics and we also did for the first time three imaginary heroes. I am Superman, I am Batman, and I am Wonder Woman. And you know where it came from is, is I realized, Amy, that to me, the most important part of the story is not Superman. The most important part of the story is Clark Kent because we're all Clark Kent and we all know what it's like to be boring and ordinary and wish we could do something beyond ourselves. And so I'm someone who loves comic books. I've written Superman and Batman in the past. The I Am series, is it's a kid's book series. You know, it's illustrated and it looks like you're reading a children's book with your kids but kids don't even realize Amelia Earhart is any different than Wonder Woman. They don't realize that Batman's any different than Dr. King. They're, they're both heroes. You know, It took me a long time when I was a little kid to realize that Batman was imaginary. I didn't care. I wanted to believe what I wanted to believe. And so we did try, we, we, did, we wanted to show kids the power of story. Is Yes, we have the Ordinary People Change the World series that'll show you all the real heroes, but we also did Stories Change the World that show you imaginary heroes that creatively have had such an impact. And the most important part of those books for me are the last few pages. 
Because what they do is they show you how the hero was created and the creators who made them. So you see Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in the back of I Am Superman. When they created Superman, they were 17 years old. Two 17-year-old teenagers, teenagers gave us Superman. And they were nerdy. They weren't popular. They weren't good-looking. They were just two 17-year-old boys with one dream. And they gave the entire world something to believe in, in Superman. And I love that story. And I want my daughter to hear that story. I want my sons to hear that story. I want everyone to know that, like, keep dreaming that dream. And even if you're a teenager, you can change the entire world. So we did I Am Superman for that reason. And, and yes, it, it may be a little odd to see I Am Superman next to I Am Mr. Rogers. But to me, both of those, call them character real people, they help us be better people by giving us models to look up to. Now, I know you also have I Am Rosa Parks, I Am Martin Luther King Jr., and there was an attempt to ban them in a school system, but I guess the attempt failed. Well, this is an unbelievable story. So last year, in Pennsylvania, of all places, one of the school boards there made a list of, of 200 books that were considered good to give to kids to talk about race. And it was a great list. You know, it wasn't just our books. It was, you know, it was books by Malala, books by Sonia Sotomayor, books by the, the, the black women at NASA from Hidden Figures. I mean, these incredible real stories. And what the school board did is they said, listen, before we take these books that everyone thinks are really good, before we release them to our kids, we should read them first, which to me is a good thing. You should read what you before you give it to a kid. Make sure it is good. There are things that are appropriate and things that aren't, of course. But here's the fast one that the school board pulled, is a year went by and they still hadn't read any of the books. These are books maybe that you can read in 10 minutes. You know, it's not like reading Moby Dick, you know, 70 times. These are books, you know, that have 40 pages in them and 10 words per page. And so what began is they said, we're going to freeze these books until we read them. So it started as a freeze becomes a ban because no one can buy them. Librarians don't know if they can use them. Teachers don't know if they can use them. So they basically, by just dragging their feet, made a ban. And I got a call from Fox News and from CNN and from MSNBC saying this is disgusting. When Fox News and CNN and MSNBC agree, you know someone did something wrong, right? You know that this school board messed up. And this, the kids in the, in the school district asked me to come speak at their school board meeting, which of course I did. And I got there, uh, it was a Zoom, it was the height of the pandemic when it happened. And it was a Zoom meeting. I would, they called me as the first one to speak. And I gave this impassioned speech. I, I, I said, you know what? I'm going to just read from I Am Rosa Parks. I read one of my favorite lines in the whole book. It says, I'm not a famous politician. I'm not a wealthy business person. I'm just an ordinary person. But I'm also proof there's no such thing as an ordinary person. And I said, this is the book you're denying these kids. And I thought after my impassioned speech that I'd saved democracy for everyone. And then, Amy, after I spoke, all these kids in the school district started speaking. And moms in the school district started speaking, saying, how dare you ban these books of people that look like me? How dare all these characters that, that you're banning happen to have black faces or you know brown faces? And you're keeping these books that we want so badly. And by the time they were done, I was useless. These were the these kids saved the day. The school board took another vote and overturned their ban, overturned their freeze, and the books went back into the curriculum. And you know, to me, we just had our "I Am Billie Jean King" book 
yesterday, you know, just recently, I should say, passed the 50th anniversary of Billie Jean King winning the Battle of the Sexes. And to me, it's incredible that that book was challenged in Florida. The school board voted on it. They had to have a whole hearing. They had to have people present evidence on both sides and blah, blah, blah. The school board in Florida finally voted on it unanimously, unanimously agreed that I am Billie Jean King should be in the schools, which was a great victory for us. And I'm thrilled that we've been winning these things, but I'm just, I can't believe we're still fighting censorship in the, you know, the 2020s. I mean, it's just backwards as can be. Today I went and I looked up the list of the 100 most banned books in the United States. And I mean, so many of them are classics that we were raised with that were an important part of everyone's education, including on the list of the 100 most banned books, The Diary of Anne Frank. I saw today. It's incredible. So we've done I Am Anne Frank in our kids' book series. So I'm intimately aware of what that book is. It's disgusting to me. The, the version that they say, like, oh, it's too graphic. It's a graphic novel version. It's very graphic. It's like, it is the exact text of the original Diary of Anne Frank. And I've studied as someone who loves history. I was so curious. I look back through history and say, what were the first books that were banned in America? What were the first books banned nationwide? You know what the first book, the single first book that was banned nationwide in the United States was Harriet Beecher Stowe's classic Uncle Tom's Cabin. Why was it banned? Because there was a group of people that didn't want people to know that slavery was such a terrible thing. And when you look through history, every book ban is about the same thing. It's about power and control and a group of people who are terrified of losing that power and control. And they just don't want the good times to change for them. And that's what you're seeing in Anne Frank. That's what you're seeing in all these books that are out there that get banned over and over. And to me, it's disgusting because I know one thing. If you're cheering while books are being pulled from the shelf, you're on the wrong side of history. You will eventually be proven as the bad guy in the story. Oh, definitely. So speaking about Anne Frank and Nazis, let's take a break for an ad and then let's come back. Now I want to move on to your books for adults and I want to talk about the Nazi conspiracy because that book is so fascinating. So we're going to go for an ad and then we're going to be right back. We are back and now we're going to talk to Brad about his books for adults, all of which are thrillers in my opinion, whether they're novels or whether they're nonfiction. And I'm really fascinated by one of your latest books, The Nazi Conspiracy. I mean, this is something I had never heard before. Wow, history was almost changed so dramatically. Let's talk about what happened in 1943 when FDR and Stalin and Churchill were all meeting in Tehran. Yeah, so this is a moment where Stalin basically is like, I need help. He's obviously taking on the Nazis in the Soviet Union, and it's going poorly. He's like, I need you to attack continental Europe. I need you to you know, have what eventually becomes, of course, D-Day. And I need you to invade. Come from the other side. Help me here. And to figure it all out, they decide that they're going to meet for the very first time face-to-face. FDR, Stalin, and Churchill are for, for the very first time going to come together. And the book opens with... FDR, the motorcade comes to Tehran, Iran, of all places, where the meeting is going to take place. And FDR is coming down in, in his motorcade, and as everyone's craning their necks, is 
motorcades going through the center of the city. Everyone's waving and smiling, trying to get a look at the president of the United States has flown across the whole globe to come here. And what nobody knows is that that's not FDR in the motorcade. It's actually a Secret Service agent in disguise. The real FDR is ducked down and hiding in the back of a beat-up sedan that's racing through the side streets on the, on the outskirts of the city. And he's ducked down because they're worried that there's a Nazi assassin who's about to murder him. And I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy for you. But that's chapter one. And what I love about the book, you know, we all know FDR and Stalin and Churchill. We've heard those names before, but you get to meet people you've never heard of. There's a man in the book named Otto Skorzeny. And Otto Skorzeny is a Nazi who gets paged to Adolf Hitler's secret headquarters, the Wolf Slayer. And the Wolf Slayer, Adolf Hitler is bringing together all of his best assassins, all of his best fighters that he has in his military. And he lines them up shoulder to shoulder in one room. And Adolf Hitler gives him a quiz. He says, what do you think of Italy? And every one of the people in line is immediately kissing the boss's rear end. And, and Otto Skorzeny says, I'm from Austria. And he knows that anyone from Austria, because Adolf Hitler's from Austria, a true Austrian forever resents Italy. They don't favor them because back in the First World War, Italy took a key piece of Austria and never gave it back. And it's a gamble by Otto Skorzeny. It's a complete gamble. doesn't know how Hitler's going to react. And Adolf Hitler turns to this guy, Otto Skorzeny, and he's like, you're my guy. You're my guy. And he sends Otto Skorzeny on this secret mission. I won't ruin it, but it's one of the craziest, wildest secret missions you've ever heard in your life. But when you read the Nazi conspiracy, you'll see what it is. You'll, and I was so convinced, no one would believe it, that Josh mentioned on my co-writer, we found a photograph of this secret mission. And I said to the editor, we have to pay and include this photograph in the book because no one will believe it unless they see it. And you will see when you read the book, uh, not just his mission, but you'll see the photo proof on that day. But Amy, the most important part of the story is, you know, what is this book really about? Why are we still telling stories about Nazis in World War II? And one of the things, you know, we're still fighting Nazis in 2023. You know, we're still fighting Nazis. And when I look back through history, one of the things we put in the book is back at the start of the war, there was actually a rally that took place in Madison Square Garden, the heart of New York City. 20,000 Nazis cheering. It was a Nazi rally with swastikas. A big flag of George Washington was there, surrounded by swastikas. The first speaker at the rally said, if George Washington were alive today, he'd be friends with Adolf Hitler. Incredible. Right? Why are we fighting Nazis in 2023? Because they never went away. And if we don't learn those lessons from the past, we're going to keep reliving them. Yeah, definitely. We are surrounded by danger right now. Every day. It's so hard to read the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, you know, the thing that's so wild is when you look back, we all want to blame Adolf Hitler as the bad guy. He's the bad guy, right? And of course, he's a bad guy. But what we forget when we tell that story is there's a conference you'll see in the Nazi conspiracy. It's called the Wannsee Conference. And it's a boring conference in a boring government office where everyone comes in and they, everyone has their pads of paper and they get a pen or pencil and they all sit around a big conference table like you'd see in any boardroom in America. And what this conference is dealing with 
in Wannsee is actually figuring out in Germany is how to eliminate the Jews and where the Jewish population is, where they're amassing more Jews than anywhere else, and how we're going to get rid of them. Because what this conference is about is the annihilation of the Jewish people. And yes, we can blame Adolf Hitler, of course, but there were all these government employees who all sat there that day and knew exactly what was being done, and none of them did anything. And that's what, why we tell these stories. You know, there's a recipe for authoritarians. You, you can have someone like Adolf Hitler, you have a charismatic leader. And Adolf Hitler, you have this leader who basically, you know, finds these, these white native-born Germans who are suffering economically. And then he says those magic words to them. You know, he says, those people are the ones causing your pain. Those people. And that's a code word, those people. And, you know, Adolf Hitler, yes, was talking about the Jewish people. But look through history. You've seen those people identify as black people, as the gay community, as the immigrant community. Pick the marginalized community you want. But it's always those people is the code word. And to me, the American dream isn't about making money. The American dream is that when you see someone being bullied, you use your voice and you stand up and you say, enough already, enough. And we think that the, that the World War II you know, is, is all about devastating to the Jewish people and the Holocaust, but the Holocaust doesn't start with the elimination of the Jews. The Holocaust starts with slogans and propaganda and rallies and book bans. That's where it begins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. It really is. So what are you working on now? So now I'm working on the new thriller. So we did, after the Nazi conspiracy, we just did, as you said, I am Mr. Rogers, then I am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Then we're going to, I'm working on the new thriller right now, which is a sequel to The Escape Artist and The Lightning Rod. My character is Zigandola. And the thrillers just always take me longer because I, I can't follow true history. I got to make it up. So unlike, you know, when I'm doing a book like The Nazi Conspiracy, I just look and see what happens next. And we write about that moment. When you write a thriller, there's no plan. There's no, I can't follow real history. It's all, it's all obviously a story that I'm making up as I go. So I love the fact that my brain gets to on certain days write thrillers and murder people. And on other days, look at history and show you amazing parts of history. And on other days, look at stories that I'm going to give your kids. But to me, what they have in common is a good story is a good story. And, and that always is kind of my driving force. Yeah. And what I like is that you do some books that are really, really entertaining and others that entertaining, but also include some very important messaging. I really do hope, it's probably up to you know, readers to tell me, because there's everything writers intend and then there's what readers experience. But I hope that every single book that I work on, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whether it's for you or for your kids, but it has one theme that drives through it, and it's my core belief. I believe ordinary people change the world. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care how much money you make. That's nonsense to me. I believe in regular people and their ability to affect change. And it's why I believe in every story I told you here today. Yeah, and in that regard, you're very much like Chicken Soup for the Soul because that's what we're all about. Ordinary people who have extraordinary stories to tell, who have extraordinary experiences. It's the same idea and the same kind of storytelling that empowers people, gives them role models, gives them hope. A lot of what we do is about giving people hope. And we need it right now. We all need it, right? These stories are so vital. And I don't think, you know, I just was reading this story. It was a study that talked about the power of story and how it affects 
It's not rules that make you behave the way you do. It's not even politicians or real people. But over and over, it said even fictional stories, the characters in fictional stories will affect your own actions more than regular things do. So, you know, whether it's Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird or Harry Potter or Dumbledore, those characters, or Superman, the one we were, of course, started talking about, those aren't just ideas, they're ideals. And they teach us to be better people. And, and I think the stories that you tell, and I hope there's the stories that we tell, give people that kind of, that moral compass to, to, and to help them kind of find their true north. Because the world seems to be spinning right now. Yeah, I think that you're right. So I'm thrilled that I got to talk to you today. Thank you so much, especially since I know you're traveling right now. It was really great to have you back on the podcast. And uh, I look forward to your next books. I look forward to reading your children's books with my grandchildren, who are almost old enough. I've got one of six. She's old Uh, enough, but then the others are like three and two. No, three and two is too young. Six is, yeah. I started them writing them for my son who was five, my daughter was eight, and now she just started college. We now have a generation of kids who come to us and say, I grew up on your books and I can't wait for your kids to start on them. You'll see when, especially at that age. When, once you get to six years old, you're coming into the sweet spot. So I would give her I Am Jane Goodall. I would give her I Am Amelia Earhart. I would give her I Am Frida Kahlo. These stories are incredible. I think I'm going to do that for Hanukkah this year. I'm going to be giving her some of your books. Well, for Hanukkah, you, you got you to give Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I will do that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It was great having you. And for our listeners, please join me next time for something totally different. A couple of stories about how pets do Christmas from our latest holiday book. Brad, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.